Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond. Welcome back to Blazing the Trail, heard here on Mater Dei Radio and through the Archdiocese of Portland's podcast channel. My name is Miriam Marston. It is great to be with you each week as we take a closer look at the call to follow Christ and the call to help lead others towards Him and towards His church. My guest this week is Bishop Mark O'Connell, who is an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese of Boston. Bishop Mark chose as his Episcopal motto the phrase, We have found the Messiah, which comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And with these five short words, we really come to the heart of evangelization, because this is the message that Christians are entrusted with to share with others. In the Gospel, as Bishop Mark will explain, Andrew tells his brother Peter that he has found the Messiah. And it doesn't stop there, because then we read, He brought him to the Lord. Again, my friends, if evangelization is not about this, then what is it about? Where are we leading people if it is not to Christ? If it is not to the heart of the Father? If it is not to the transforming power of the sacraments? Now keep in mind, we don't have to use Andrew's precise words. There are many different ways to express how one has discovered the Messiah, the Savior. It might be something along the lines of, I have found that place that I can finally call home. Or, I have had an encounter with the one who has a loving plan for my life and who is the source of my joy. The context doesn't need to be strictly the same either. It can be shared in a song, in a late night phone conversation with a friend, on a bumper sticker. But the refrain is the same. We have found the Messiah. And when that truth sinks in, I mean really sinks in, It's hard for life not to look any different than it did before. And it is the example of that life which looks different, which is such a needed witness in our world today. So please enjoy my conversation with Bishop Mark as he talks about the importance of mentorship and family dinners, about reading the Bible, having a sense of humor, and his reflections on the graces that come with orders. Joining me on the show today is Bishop Mark O'Connell, an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese of Boston. Uh, Bishop Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. How are you today? I am great, Miriam. So nice to see you again. Bishop Mark, our paths crossed uh, a long time ago. You were the first boss I had working for the Catholic Church. This was taking us back to 2006 um, when I started. I moved to Boston and uh, started working for the Archdiocese of Boston there. So that's when we first met. And it's been great to stay in touch um, through the years. So thank you for, for being here today. Yes, and you're welcome back anytime we, you, know, you, you, you left us. And we felt abandoned, but we got along. But uh, I didn't really feel abandoned. I was so happy for you. And I'm happy for you where you are in life, Miriam. And uh, your sister, Joelle, worked for me first, though. That's true. She did indeed. <laughs> That's true. She she paved the way as she has done for so many things for me. So, 
Well, Bishop Mark, I've been interviewing guests for the last year or so, and I've heard so many different stories, but there is something in common. It's somewhere along the way, uh, the truth, the beauty, the meaning of the gospel was shared with each of them. So uh, Bishop Mark, when did the person of Christ first catch your attention? What did your life of faith look like growing up? Uh, Please take it from here. Very good. Well, uh, Miriam, uh, I grew up in a very Catholic family. And uh, my uncle was a priest. My my aunt is a nun. Two great uncles were priests. Uh, the uh, both sides of the family. My other aunt had eleven kids. So uh, in my family, we have four. I'm the youngest. And uh, my parents moved to Toronto, Canada, before I was born. So I spent my first twelve years in Toronto mm-hmm. with the Passionist Fathers. Uh, there in a church called St. Gabriel's. And uh, I would say my experience of church was, we're the type of family to go to the church, sit in the exact same pew in the exact same order. Okay. And uh, I used to love this priest, Father Paul Cusack, who uh, he told a joke. Years later, after I was even a bishop, I met him. And uh, I said, you know, you're part of my vocation story because you told a joke and he was so pleased because I think that uh, not everyone appreciated his jokes <laughs> but the fact that he kept me interested and uh, another part of my real growth in faith mm-hmm. was I sat on the end mm-hmm. and my father would give me the money for the collection basket. Okay. And I kept noticing over the years that he would give different amounts. Mm-hmm. Eventually learned he would give better money if it was a good homily. <laughs> so I started, I think I started paying attention to the homily yeah. uh, to see if that would affect my dad. Yeah. And so my father is my first hom- homiletics professor because uh, I would pay attention to see you know, was this going to get X or Y or Z? And uh, anyway, so the seeds of my faith are in a very Catholic family in a beautiful parish, passionist yeah. uh, priest. And my uncle is a priest with great influence on me uh, when we moved to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents are from the Boston area, but job in Toronto had me came back. Mm-hmm. So then uh, another critical moment of my own faith journey was this desire to read the Bible Hmm. and the fact that we didn't have a Bible that I had access to in the house. Really? Okay. And uh, there was just no Bible that I knew of. Maybe there was, but Hmm. I I had a desire to read the Bible. So now I'm like 13, 14 and uh, had this desire to read the Bible. And so I, for some reason, I thought, because we don't have a Bible, I got to keep this a secret. Oh, gosh. So I I, get, I went to a store, and uh, I think I bought the Good News Bible Catholic Edition. Mm-hmm. I was looking for something that was Catholic, and I was smart enough to do that. And then I hid my Bible. Oh, goodness. And would read it only when people were not watching. One day... My <laughs> My mother caught me hiding the Bible. 
And I don't know what she thought I had, but she was not happy that I was reading something that she didn't know what it was. Right. And so she demanded to know what it was. But boy, did I surprise her when I pulled out a Bible. So, <laughs> so that, um, that, those, the kind of the innate, I want more has been a part of my life since I was a little boy in the pew. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just don't know where that came from. I had to teach myself uh, how to pray um, hmm. and uh, still teaching myself with others. Yeah. So that's the early part. Seeds of faith. Got it. And so for so you weren't praying, for instance, as a family outside of mass, really? Well, uh, we always prayed at dinner. Prayed at dinner. And, uh, and we always added prayers at the end of the grace. So we could add, who do we want to pray for? And we always prayed for if there was anyone missing at the table, like they were off doing something. We always prayed for the missing people. We still do that when we're together as a, as a family. And uh, so I would say the most important prayer besides mass was uh, grace at dinner. But it, it was. We didn't just say, bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts. Right. Uh, we, we, uh, we added we were able to add to it. Family dinner, very important. But we weren't, uh, I remember my mother tried to to uh, start a family rosary, just mm-hmm. kind of didn't work with us. Yeah. And maybe we were too young at the time. But, uh, and then we, of course, we would pray if there were issues, we would gather us in to pray. My father was uh, doing something, then we would have these like prayer together. So, but uh, that's actually the extent of our prayer life. Except for my mother is a deep, long, she was, she died, uh, is a, uh, she's a person who would pray all the time. Yeah. And when I was a young per, uh, boy, she would pray in the living room and she would go there and I wasn't allowed to go in. Huh. And I, you know, it's hard for a boy, <laughs> but yeah. what's she doing in there? So <laughs> she, she was praying and, uh, Oh. And uh, she would, I remember staying after mass while she was praying. So my mother was a, a great example of uh, a person of, of deep prayer. And she would, she would go to mass every day. Wonderful. Okay. So, so just a Catholic, Catholic, Catholic family. Yeah. So definitely some seeds being planted uh, there. So mm-hmm. walk us through then, how did your vocational discernment then deepen over time? So, um, I would probably say that uh, I'm a very traditional vocation, mm-hmm. coming from a Catholic family, went to a Catholic grammar school. I didn't go to a Catholic high school, but I, or junior high, but I went to one through six, K through six is Catholic. And then um, in high school, uh, the seeds of my vocation start not with, um, with confidence. Hmm. So uh, I was somehow picked I think this is extremely important to my vocation. I was somehow picked by two teachers to be a leader in my school and my class. Hmm. And they encouraged me to run for parish uh, parish council, student council. And I remember thinking how silly an idea that was because these kids don't like me. And uh, yet I I ran and I won uh, the CETA student council. And through student council and through the mentorship of those two teachers... Yeah. Uh, in high school, 
public high school, both of them Catholic, both of them at my first mass, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, they saw something in me I didn't see in me, and I became a leader in that school. So I ended up the president of the school. And I want to, and so, and I ran a lot of things in the school. I really became a public leader Mm -hmm. because I was picked by teachers. So, so that happened. So now um, my birthday falls in between graduation from high school, right after that, and summer vacation. And I was accepted into Boston College, uh, where uh, my, fam- my father worked there. And uh, anyway, I, got, uh, I went to Boston College. So I am sitting on the back porch of the house that I lived in my family. And uh, you have to, at that point, think about picking a major mm-hmm. or college. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. And the thought in my head was something to the effect of, I would really, uh, I, I'd like to be a priest. I wish God would call me. <laughs> yeah. And the, Beautiful transition that happened was such a subtle one from yeah. I wish God would call me to maybe this is a call. So I, I vowed on that day, on my 18th birthday, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I vowed that day to give it a shot. And mm-hmm. I would start living my life as if I was going to be a, 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 a studying to be a priest, be a priest. Mm-hmm. And I gave myself permission to get off the train any time I wanted to. I never stopped. So then gradually you learn. I mean, I didn't even know what a priest did. So uh, gradually I did all the processes and became Mm -hmm. a priest. I was 25 when I was ordained. So uh, I was, I was young and uh, I've been a, this is my 31st year of priesthood. Praise God. Wonderful. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. And uh, Bishop Mark, when we first met, uh, it was, because you were a canon lawyer and I was uh, hired to <laughs> work in that canon law office. So for our listeners who might be really unfamiliar with canon law, uh, what is this? What is canon law, Bishop Mark? Okay. So after I became a priest, I was sent to parishes. And then one day I got called into the bishop's office. Yeah. Uh, Bishop William Murphy, who's now retired in Rockville Center in New York. Anyway, he was the vicar general. And he called me in and and, uh, asked me to go to Rome and study canon law. Now, I didn't have any inkling, clue, desire, need. Uh, I I never in my life thought, hey, I could be a canon lawyer. Uh, (laughs) Or that the world needed candid lawyers. <laughs> so, I mean, shoot, I, it just wasn't something I was uh, yeah. thought about. Yeah. So I got sent to Rome for four years where I did a doctorate in canon law. And the canon law is basically the laws of the church. So uh, every society has laws and rules that keep us together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I teach canon law, I like to say even ants have the laws. Uh you know, the, the, you know those ants that like carry the big leaves? I'm giving yeah. you, I know people can't see us, but I'm giving you an impression of an ant carrying a leaf. <laughs> well, on the way in, 
to the nest, they walk in the middle and the way out, they walk on the outside. And, uh, you know, you, all societies have laws Mm -hmm. and our church has laws to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And they can be as serious as criminal laws. If, if, uh, we, I was very active in the abuse crisis in the United States of Boston, still am, or it could be, um, that we only use wheat uh, for the blessed sacrament. All these are the laws of the church, and they uh, they deal with types of priests. They deal with rights and duties of priests and religious and lay people, and they do with uh, uh, business, uh, the financings of the church, and they deal with the liturgy of the church. And all acts of the church have law. And I am a canon lawyer, and uh, I I. That's uh, what I do as a canon lawyer. So uh, after I came back from Rome, uh, I came back from Rome after studying on July 1st, 2001. Mm -hmm. In the Archdiocese of Boston, the abuse crisis hit the front page of the Boston Globe on January 6th, 2002. So I had this five months or so of doing just normal canon law questions. And then... The abuse crisis hit, and and I've had a, a large concentration trying to be a solution. But you see how God put me in that position. When I went to Rome, I had no idea what I was going to do with my canon law degree. But God needed me and others in that position to find a solution to this enormous problem in the church. And I was primed to be in that position. So I, I love how God used me that way. But that's what I have done as a canon lawyer. Well, and it sounds, Bishop Mark, that uh, God also used other people as instruments to help point you in the right direction. We heard that with the teachers uh, Mm -hmm. who called on you to be a leader. Uh, You got the call from the bishop to go to Rome. Uh, Eventually, you would get another call saying, you would be a bishop. <laughs> and so how yes. did, how did that go? Well, that was, that was, uh, uh, the funny thing is before one is picked as a bishop, your name surfaces in some mysterious way, uh, often from the bishops, regional bishops conferences. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so somehow my name got out there. And so the nuncio in Rome, who is, um, Archbishop Vigano at the time, mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, did the vetting of me. And so he sends letters to people to see, okay, is this guy worthy of, of giving a shot to be a bishop, right? So yeah. those are very secretive things. So you're, you have to write them out, then you have to send it all back to the nuncio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the judicial vicar in the Archdiocese of Boston at the time. And um, he sent a letter vetting me to me uh, care of me in other words okay. and so he said to a priest care of me right and not paying any attention uh, to this is not to me but care of me right. I opened it up right so so six months before I was actually called to be a bishop I I mistakenly opened the envelope that was vetting me. So I had a clue. Sure. So so one day I get a call from Bishop Vigano, Archbishop Vigano. And uh, so it didn't completely take me off guard. I didn't like, oh, wow. But I must say that 
I didn't have any thought or ambition to being a, a bishop when I was before I got that letter. Uh, I really, really desperately wanted to be a pastor because right. I've been in central administration for so long. Right. And my life goal is to be a pastor. Right. So uh, he calls and he uh, he said, the Holy Father is asking you to be an auxiliary bishop of Boston. And I said, oh, wow, or something like that. And he said, uh, um, what is your answer? I said, well, I'm not going to say no. And he said, no, you have to say yes or no. You have to say yes or no. I don't know why he was so urgent. Actually, it was his last day on the job. So maybe he had a taxi. Oh. Um, so, uh, but it, it was uh, just the very end of his time. And, uh, and I'm not making fun of him. I just, that was his urgency. Yeah. And so I said, yes. And he said immediately, good, because it's very difficult to be a bishop. And I thought to myself, you could have said that 10, minutes, 10 seconds right. ago. Right, right, exactly. But okay. I am, I happily said yes. Yeah. And uh, it has brought great blessings into my life. And uh, reflecting for this interview, yeah. one of the things I really am struck with was uh, the graces that come with orders. I'm sure you received great graces when you became a consecrated virgin. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, but when I became a transitional deacon, yeah. I thought, well, how am I going to preach? You know, what do I have to say? I'm 25. But... The graces of orders allowed me to have that confidence. Yeah. And then uh, as a transitional thinking, thinking about being a priest, I said, how am I going to be a confessor? I mean, uh, but the graces of orders totally allows me to be a, a yeah. confessor and do the things I need to be a priest with confidence, even though I'm so much younger at the time than most people I was ministering to. Wow. Age didn't have anything to do with it. It was the grace of orders. And I found that same grace of orders when I became a bishop. There was uh, uh, certain things that uh, I thought, well, I don't know if I could do that. But trusting in the grace of orders and relying upon the grace of orders, I think is a powerful thing. And yeah. your invitation to this made me think about the grace of orders. It really is a powerful, powerful thing. You become different in some ways. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing. And I, I remember um, I was there when you became a bishop and I, came, I flew to Boston. And uh, I remember at one point you mentioned that uh, about saying, you know, yes. And you said, well, I've, I've said yes this whole time. Why would I start saying no now? <laughs> And I remember that. Well, um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, also, let me add to that. Thank you, Miriam, for remembering that. But um, I have a very close friend, Father Paul, and uh, Father Paul Soper, and uh, we're, we uh, we do lots together. We knew each other before seminary, and we're classmates, and we we're, we're very close. And uh, we both, early on, before we were priests, thought that neither one of us would ever say no unless we had to. Yeah. So that we would open ourselves up to whatever the bishop wanted or God wanted through them. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in your diocese might be different, but in our diocese, you're allowed to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, in some dioceses, the tradition is the priest gets his marching orders and off he goes. Yeah. He can complain all he wants, but he's going to go. Yeah. 
Yeah. In our archdiocese, there's more people that say no and or ask for a particular place to go to. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't like that. But whatever the church asks, I'm going to say yes. And so why would I stop now is what I was meaning, uh, you know, just because it's this. And since I've always been happy in the ministry, I just assumed and it's turned out I'm a happy bishop. I continue to make mistakes, but uh, I am at peace inside because I know I am where God wants me to be. That's awesome. And what was the uh, what was the motto that you took uh, when you became a bishop? I know bishops that struggle over their motto, and I I promise you, Miriam, that even in those six months when I had a hint. I never thought, okay, I should come up with a motto mm-hmm. until you have to come up with a motto. Right. And it took me 20 minutes. Some people struggle. Some people really struggle over that. But it took me 20 minutes because I always knew that I love Andrew, St. Andrew. Yeah. And uh, I love St. Andrew, especially in the Gospel of John. So I knew it would come from the Gospel of John. I knew it would come from St. Andrew, who's the great evangelist. You know, he first, he evangelizes his brother, brings him to the Lord. And then he evangelizes the young boy with the five fish and the two loaves. uh, Mm -hmm. And he brings him to the Lord. And then he and Philip evangelize the Greeks at the end of John's Gospel. And what do they do? They bring the, he brings the foreigners to the Lord. And so you bring his family the mm-hmm. child and the people do not know Christ all to the Lord. And uh, so, so it was going to come from Andrew. Mm-hmm. And what Andrew says to his brother, Peter, is we have found the Messiah. And in Latin, that is in venomous Messiah. So that is my motto. We have found the Messiah. That's a great note to end on as we come to the end of our time together, Bishop Mark. I want to thank you so much for your time today. And I just ask that the Lord continue to bless your work, your ministry, and the good people of the Archdiocese of Boston. Thank you, Miriam. God God bless bless you. you. A theme of my conversation with Bishop Mark was this theme of saying yes. Yes to God's call, to the church. Yes to being an instrument of faith wherever we might be. And I want to stay on this note as we come to the end of the episode. My friends, have you recently felt like God was calling you to something? I'm not necessarily referring to a vocation, though certainly you might be listening in the midst of some serious vocational discernment. But even if it's something smaller, something seemingly insignificant or unimportant, that yes matters. Because every yes to God advances His love, His goodness, and His truth in the world. And there is nothing small about even the slightest movement of grace. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you can join me next week as we continue to share stories of what God is doing through His beloved sons and daughters. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon, by visiting archdpdx.org.